Sikowski family ask that you in your very loving and gracious way bestow peace upon them as the family takes time to honor and Barbara and to strengthen Richard we ask Lord that your spirit would be present with them during this time in a powerful way Lord just pray that as a church body we can do whatever we can to support them through this difficult time Lord and Lord we do agree as your family here that you will come and spare our nation as we wipe out our dirty dishes Lord we pray that you would wipe out these wicked people Lord that are continually murdering abusing destroying families Lord we know you hate those things Lord and we have learned to hate them as well the innocents that are being destroyed the disruptions the pain and the sorrow because of ugly demonic expressions Lord and so we just ask that you would again cause your spirit to come upon this nation Lord and bring about a revival and a transformation of our culture once again Lord we've seen you visit in history Lord and you will not tolerate what's going on forever you will judge this Lord nobody walks away from this who's guilty and we're just grateful for your justice Lord and we're asking for mercy upon us Lord we know that the God of all the earth the judge of all the earth will do what's right and we ask that you would move in our country Lord establish our leadership remove the wicked and establish the righteous in rule Lord we agree together on these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn with me, if you have a Bible, to <coughs> Romans chapter 12. So we'll spend the next few Sundays talking about spiritual gifts and bringing instruction in regards to, to these things that are important. We uh, have been praying for revival. We have been uh, seeking to evangelize the last couple of months. And now it's equipping our body here to be prepared to serve. Each one of you have been endowed with a spiritual gift. God has gifted you, whether you are aware of it and whether you are operating in that gift. God has blessed everyone who has been born again with a gift. And that gift needs to be employed and put to use. And so this is what we are seeking to do. Part one today on spiritual gifts out of Romans and then next week out of First Corinthians. Now, if you're somewhat familiar with the book of Romans you know that Paul spends the first 11 chapters laying out doctrine, teaching he lays the groundwork for how God could justify a sinner and how God sanctifies a sinner and how eventually those believing sinners will be glorified in his presence and he lays out one of the most incredible 
theological treatises ever written by man. And as is Paul's way in all of his letters, he has a pattern of laying out the doctrine, the teaching. This is what we believe and this is why we believe it and this is what God says in regard to these things. This is the truth. And then at the latter part of his letters, he always has application. And you never, and we never want to separate doctrine from application. And I find that this is probably the problem that we're having in the church globally, really. Not, it's just not in the United States. It's everywhere because it's, you have fallen people. The, we're not to lose sight of the, this perspective of doctrine and knowing doctrine requires that we practice that. How did we come to this point? How is it that we can come to church and assemble together week after week, month after month, and year after year, and there not be much change in the life of, of a truly born-again person? There's a disconnect, and I believe it's this disconnect that I'm talking about. We have head knowledge. We have theological instruction in our minds, but we have not allowed it to sift down into our hearts where it can do its transforming work. And this is not to blame the church of Christ. It's not the blame primarily if we're to blame anyone is not upon the believers, generally speaking. It's upon the leadership of the church. Now as we look at the leadership of the church, what does the church look like? Well, we have certain men who have been gifted by God as scholars. They study the, the original languages. They know the scriptures and we in fact that's one of the reasons we started seminaries years ago that if you do a little word study on on seminaries it's kind of interesting it's like taking a little seed pod and put you know starting it and you know like in the greenhouse and you start the little sprout and getting the plant started along the way then you're able to take it out and and plant it later on and it's off to a good start and so the thought behind beginning, you know, starting seminaries was to take men who had a call of God upon their lives, put them in an environment where they could grow, where they could learn the scriptures and know the scriptures, and then take them out and plant them in the local areas and around the world, actually, to help the people of God to grow in their faith. But there's been a disconnect between the scholarly level and the pastoral level. We've allowed seminaries to focus on intellectualism and academics. We want our pastors to have the Ph.D. and the letters behind them. And, and I'm not against education by any stretch. I've had my share. I probably could use a little bit more, actually. In fact, I'm getting that. I'm working on my B.S.D. degree. I don't know if you guys know what that one is, but it's, it's called the backside of the desert. <laughs> you learn to trust God when you don't get what's going on, right? But we need scholars. They're able, they're not maybe very good at communicating God's truths and they don't maybe have a, a pastor's heart. But they know the language and they know what the scripture is saying and they're able to write words and articulate that in such a way that the pastors like myself who aren't as educated and aren't as academically inclined that we can grasp it and take the sense of what the scripture is saying and then bring it 
in simpler terms, to the people of God. But there's a disconnect in the church. There's a separation between the scholars and the pastors, those that are actually doing the work. And so pastors who end up going to seminary fall into the trap of trying to be like seminary professors. And it's dry bones. It's like, you know, could you possibly get any drier? You know, and there's the lack of power, the lack of, of, of something that applies to their life. And what happens is that you can become so intellectually and academically focused that you don't, you're not even pay attention to the author. So these men of higher level, elite, some of them, treat themselves if, you know, in their, as they descend from their ivory tires, towers of theology to you know, give us their, their wisdom. They, have, they don't even know the author as they should. And yet they know the scriptures, and that, to me, is an amazing thing. That's why I preach devotion. And I believe that this is how the Bible is to be taught. It's to, to be taught devotionally. So this is, was Paul's method. Paul was the most educated of all the apostles. I mean, he, the treatise that he wrote here in Romans is, is incredible. As Paul, Peter said, Paul's writings sometimes hard to be understood. And they are. And yet, Paul went out and he washed feet. He made tents. He went out with the common people and he pastored the people where he planted the churches because he had a heart of a servant. And so this disconnect, this separation can be halted if we as leaders in the church will begin to take what we know to be true, the doctrine, and, and, and apply it to our lives. If we will take what we learn and allow the Holy Spirit to come in and transform us and change us, then this can stop. This is what God wants. He wants all of us to come under the fullness of the stature of Christ, to grow in our maturity. This is why we meet together uh, in, in, at Calvary Chapel. We desire to study the Word of God, Genesis to Revelation, giving the people of God the full counsel and allow them to understand and know the nature and character of God so, th so that we can trust God. God is a trustworthy God. He can be trusted, but it, if you don't know Him, it's going to be awful difficult to really trust Him. And so this is what you say, well, what's that really got to do with spiritual gifts? A whole lot. And you'll see here. We're to integrate this truth that we've learned from the Scriptures by allowing the Spirit to transform us. And so let's read through the first eight verses, and that's all we'll cover this morning, of Romans chapter 12. And shall we stand as I read the Word of God? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Whereas we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function. 
And so we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in the proportion to our faith. Or in ministry, let us use in our ministering. And he who teaches in teaching. And he who exhorts in exhortation. And he who gives with liberality. He who leads with diligence. And he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. You may be seated. Verses 1 and 2, the objective of knowing God and knowing the truth about God and doctrine, the teaching of the scriptures is that we might be consecrated to God. Our lives might be given over to him. He redeemed us from the ash heap. We were of a brand, as the prophet, minor prophet says, plucked from the fire. And God wants not only to save us, but he wants to sanctify us and make our lives of value to use, to be used of God. And in the consecration process, our responsibility is to do what Paul is telling the believers here, to present themselves to God. But notice how he says here, I beg you. It is as though Paul is getting on his knees. He's lost all dignity in that regard. He's on his knees begging these Roman Christians and really all of us today, please, I'm urging you, present yourself by the mercies of God to him. Now he's expressed this idea of mercy and we don't really probably appreciate this attribute of God towards us as much as we should because we don't really think we're as bad as we are. But we don't understand perfection. We don't really understand the holiness of God. Now Israel got it because they had a physical experience with Yahweh. Remember when they came out of Egypt and they were there at the base of, of the mountain and the Lord appeared? Blackness and thickness, hiding himself from the people so he wouldn't kill them essentially, made boundaries around the base of the mountain so nobody would come near. And the mountain quaked and it shook and there was fire and thunder. And they said, whoa, Moses, okay, we get it. God's holy. Would you just, you talk to God and you tell us what God is saying and we'll do what God says and, and, and whatever we want to ask God, we'll ask you and you can ask him for us. You just, we can't handle this. Now, I wish we could have that kind of encounter sometimes. Have an encounter with God that would just shake us to the core. But that's not always how the Lord works. And this, it, sometimes it's just His love that breaks us down. And then we begin to just yield. And we realize that He's not here to scare us or to freak us out. He's there to, to love on us. He loves us. He wants us to be near but he has certain things that he requires of us as we approach him. And so this is Paul's heart, that people would, would yield themselves and present themselves. Now I like this word urge, and I'm kind of beating it up here a little bit, because it's the, it's the word used, uh, its base is used for the word, uh, the, for the Holy Spirit, paracletus. And Jesus in John 14 15 and 16 talked a lot about the work of the Holy Spirit. Many of you are familiar with those scriptures. 
But the Holy Spirit was promised to come alongside and help the believer. And so there's this urgent call of the Spirit within us that is begging in us as Christians, as believers, to yield ourselves, to come and offer ourselves in service to God. And that's what it means to present. It means simply to offer. But it's all based upon the mercies of God. What do we all deserve? We deserve to be punished. But in the previous chapter, as Paul ends it there in 11.29 uh, through 32, he talks about that God might have mercy upon all. That's the overriding conviction of, of Paul's thrust here. God wants to have mercy upon the human race. He wants to have mercy and does have mercy upon you and me. And that's so important for us to understand. But God is a gentleman. He will not invade your heart. He will not invade your space unless you invite him. You must ask the Lord. You know, he uses this word present in chapter 6 and verse 3 when talking to the believers about presenting themselves as instruments of righteousness. And so this is the whole idea of just giving ourselves and offering ourselves back to God. Now let's think about this for a minute. He created us. He's forgiven us. He's washed us. He's sanctifying us. Is it too much for us to just give our lives back to him since he made us and he has a plan for us and he knows exactly why and all the wherefores about our lives wouldn't it just doesn't it just make sense that we ought to just surrender it does and that's what he's talking about here a living sacrifice now obviously Paul is well <laughs> steeped in Judaism he understands the sacrificial system and so he's thinking in terms of the Old Testament sacrifice here. But the thing about the Old Testament sacrifice, and this is something that's missing in the church today. No one, no believer in the Old Testament would have thought for one moment that they could approach God without sacrifice. We don't even know what the word sacrifice means in our culture. Oh, I don't, I don't, I don't get cream in my coffee? Are you serious? What a sacrifice. I mean, you know, we just don't get sacrifice. Nobody would ever visit the prophet because they wanted to hear from God without bringing him something. There was always an offering unto God. There was always a sacrifice involved. Well, Jesus made it really easy for us. He did all the sacrificing in the New Testament. The Old Testament sacrifices were slain. They were dead on the altar as they were offered. In the New Testament, we are the living sacrifices. And that's what he's saying here. We're to be that living sacrifice. Holy. Now a lot of people get stumbled by holy. Well, I can't really present myself to God. I'm a train wreck. I'm a moral, you know, failure. Well, join the crowd. You know, who hasn't sinned? Who hasn't fallen short of perfection? Now, there might be degrees in our failures, but what does it matter? If you fail nine out of ten times or, one, or, or, or you know, once out of ten times, you're still a sinner. You're still missing perfection. You still need atonement. You still need forgiveness. Now, the more you sin, the more damage you do to your mind and your heart and your soul. I get that. But it doesn't rule you out. It doesn't take away what needs to happen. 
You're holy. Holiness just simply means you're set apart. God is the one that does this. God is setting you apart and me apart for himself. Now, he's talking about presenting himself a holy and acceptable to God. That means it's pleasing to God. Jesus had this testimony, and I will pray, and this is a good prayer for all of us. Jesus said, I always do those things that please the Father. And the Father confirmed that. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Would to God he'd be able to say that about you and about me. Oh, man, there's my sir. Look at that. Jesus loves me. Look at him. He's just doing what I'm asking him to do. And it isn't necessarily bless your heart either, but it's, it's, he's, it's, just, you know, it's just like a father seeing a son or a daughter walk in the right direction. It's just, yes. Yeah. It's awesome. That's the way it is. What it's about. So seeking to be pleasing to God means we're taking the doctrine, we're taking what we've been taught, and we're allowing the Holy Spirit to apply it to our hearts. We're giving God permission to work within our hearts. It is no longer just an intellectual accumulation of knowledge. Oh, I know a lot about God. Notice, I, in my heart, I know Him, and I love Him, and I do not want to do anything to offend my God. And when I cross the line and I'm rude to someone or I'm not kind, then I realize that grieves him and I, I confess it. I have to apologize. I do that more than I'd like to admit, but it, that's the way it is. He understands the weaknesses of our flesh, but it doesn't rule out what we have to do when, when we do make a mistake. We want to be pleasing to God. Now, a lot of people think it's really tough. You lay down your life for the Lord, that you're going to be it's just going to be a painful, disgusting, and hard life to sacrifice your life to serve God with all that's within you. You're going to be a miserable mess. You see, that's really what the enemy would like us to believe. But it's actually the opposite. If you don't do it, you're going to experience more misery, more pain, more sorrow outside the will of God than you are inside the will of God. And so this is what Paul is laying out here is just spiritual, rational logic. Because God has called you and chosen you and saved you, it's your reasonable service to consecrate your life to God. Now, this is going to involve a radical change within our lives. See, we don't, we, we have been shaped by our culture. This is how we should live. We think, you know, they, they dangle success in front of the silver screen to us. And if you'll partake of this, you'll have satisfaction. You'll experience fulfillment. And these things that are presented to us are nothing but lies. This is what Paul is getting to in, with these people people here with these Roman Christians. It says, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Because it is your reasonable act of worship to present yourself to God. 
he gives then a negative command. Don't be conformed to this world. You will get nowhere trying to act out. Because that's really what the world does. We, we kind of think it might be this way, so we try to act this way to be acceptable. That doesn't work in God's kingdom. You see, that's the, the way the world works is from the outside in. And as we'll see here, God works from the inside out. And we find an interesting word here in being not conformed. It is sesquitsamete, which is essentially, uh, we get our English word schematic. You know, if you're a technical guy and you work in technology, or if you're a builder or any of those kinds of things, electrical contractor, you understand that uh, you need a schematic to figure out the wiring diagram or, or how something is assembled or, or to follow the circuitry and all that kind of thing. Uh, but the schematic is not the real thing. It's just a representation of what's there and, and how it's constructed. And see, that's similar to what the world is. It can only give you a picture. It's not the reality. And, and what the world has to offer isn't real. It's an illusion. And the world presents an illusion of potential satisfaction if you'll drive this car or if you'll have this love affair. It's all phony. It's all a lie. You see, those are the things that the world says will bring fulfillment to us, and they won't. It's only the presence of God in the heart of a human being that can bring total and complete satisfaction and fulfillment. It is being in right standing with God. How is a right standing with God? It's simply through, done through confession. You don't need to go to see a priest. You don't need to go see a pastor. If you, in the privacy of your own heart, will just say, Lord, I'm a train wreck. I'm a moral failure. I have sinned against my family. I've sinned against you. I've made mistakes. And you just own your wrongdoings and, and confess them to God in the privacy of your own heart. God, please forgive me in the person of Jesus Christ and he will. It's instantaneously given because that's why Jesus died. Now, then it, it's, that's the starting point. It is the walking with God. It is allowing God to work within your soul and your spirit to transform you, to change you because when you are born again, your spirit is made alive and there's a new man installed, so to speak, in your being. We're body, soul, and spirit. And until we receive Christ, that spirit is dead. And when we receive Jesus, we're born again. That spirit is made alive. Now we have a God consciousness. We're aware of God's working within our lives. And when we allow God to work through the spirit in our lives, we experience an incredible fulfillment that otherwise escapes us. You know, uh, John, the apostle, what really drove that guy? He was in his 90s, we believe, before the Lord took him home. And in his last letter to the church, Third John, verse 4, he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. You see, that's 
he'd lived long enough and experienced enough and seen enough that the most important thing was that we walk in truth. And that's what it means to walk with the Lord. You're just walking in honesty. Now, here's sort of the struggle. We, we think if we get really real with God that it's going to be shame. It's going to be like, I can't really be that real. Oh, yeah. You, you must. It, it's not painful. It's, it's, it's in our pride. It is hard to confess. I don't like the idea that, that sometimes when I'm hot, I'm a grouch. I'm irritable. And if you cross me, I'm going to nail you with some harsh words. And I don't like to admit that, but I'm guilty of that. Well, just stay out of the sunlight, Pastor. You won't have a problem. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> yeah, I'd wish. <laughs> you know, God only puts us in those situations of life to bring out what's there. He knows what's there. We need to recognize this there. When I see it, I just, oh, and then I got to, <laughs> I got to go apologize again. And, and you just, you get used to it after a while. If, you, if you're real with yourself, you realize you, you're just being honest with yourself. And we'll see a little bit of that as we work here. Just remember this. You're in a war. And you're going to have a fight to present yourself to God. You're going to think it's unreasonable, that it's not rational to present yourself to God. Why? Because you have, a, as a believer, you have three enemies. The world, your flesh, your fallen nature, and the devil. Now, it's a real battle when all three of those are hitting your soul at one time. But there's victory in the power and presence of Christ. Just remember that. That's who you're fighting against. And it's a war. This isn't going to come easy. But being transformed is, an, is a great thing to experience. But be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is how it happens. This is why doctrine is so important. It renews our mind. It gives the Holy Spirit something to work with. You know, this is why the church is in its state that it is. The Word of God is not being ministered. It's not being taught from the pulpit. Because the pulpit people are getting it from what? From, you know, thinking that academics and just knowledge is sufficient. You, you can't intellectualize your walk because it's a spiritual thing that needs to take place. It's a spiritual transformation that must happen. Metamorphosis is the English word that comes from this word. It means a transformation of your mind, your attitude, your actions. And transformation comes when you worship God. It's you worship God in spirit and in truth, and you are worshiping Him from the depths of your being, there is a transformation that takes place that only He can do. And it's a wonderful thing. I think that's why we all keep coming back. Because God's here. And His Spirit is here. His Spirit's within each of us. And we love to express our gratitude and our love to Him. And in doing so, there's a joy and there's a transformation that's continually taking place within our lives. This is what it's all... It's not complicated. It isn't about religion. It's about relationship. It's about just simply loving God with all of who we are and who He is. 
and loving each other. We're just, you're part of the forever family of God. We're going to, you know, we're going to be hanging around a lot together in heaven. You know that, right? So you might as well get used to it, right? And we can love each other with that same love now. That's what it's all about, being transformed. And this starts, like I said, at, at new birth. We receive that new nature and we're born again. We get a new mind. God is not interested in cleaning up your old man. That guy is done. He's got one answer for the old man, the cross. See yourself and your wickedness and your grouchiness or whatever your issue is nailed to the cross because that's why Jesus died there, to set us free from our old man. And we, by faith, as Paul says earlier in this letter, need to reckon our old man to be dead to sin and alive to God in the Spirit. And there's this war between the new man and the old man. It's, it's a daily battle, but I have a choice. This is what Paul's leading him into here. I like this word metamorpho because it, it's really, really the same word is used at the mountain of transfiguration. It's transfiguration is the English word there that's used. But Peter, James, and John are there and all of a sudden, it's a, a major sci-fi freak-out moment. Jesus starts glowing. Like, whoa! Like, his face <clears throat> begins to shine like the sun. Like, whoa! What was happening there? It's the same thing is to happen to a believer. This is what happens in our life. This is glorious, brothers and sisters. This is wonderful. The true nature of who Jesus Christ was in the flesh, came shining through. The reality of who Jesus is, Yahweh, the creator God, in human form, is now displaying his inner glory by pulling back the human flesh that he took on. Amazing. But that's exactly what is happening in us. We're being transformed by the truth of God, by giving God permission to come into my heart, into my life, say, Lord, you got a lot of work to do, but I'm giving you the permission to do it. And when you allow him to do that, he's so gentle. He is so kind. He is so trustworthy. He's not going to push you. He's not going to hammer you. He's not going to condemn you. But he's not going to let you walk away either. You know, think about how exacting God is. And He is exacting. I love this story of Abraham and Sarah. And she's, you know, the Lord in the Old Testament came. He's known as the angel of the Lord. The theophany. And He comes with two angels and they're, you know, hey, should we tell, you know, they come to tell Abraham what was, what was coming down. And that Sarah was going to have a, a child. And so she's listening to all this, you know. And the Lord's, she's probably behind the Lord in the door. <laughs> I would have been there too, you know. And as soon as she heard that she was going to have a child, what did she do? You guys remember? She chuckled. Fact is, I think we'll just call your boy Isaac, which means laughter. So you want to laugh? Okay, we'll just laugh the rest of your life. Isaac. <laughs> And then, why did Sarah laugh? Addressing Abraham. And Sarah says, I didn't laugh. 
What does the Lord say? Ah, but you did. You see how exacting God is? Now, there's gentleness there. But he wants us to be honest. And I can tell you, I, I don't enjoy this scripture, but I know it's true. The heart is deceitful above all things. Who can know it? God knows it. He allows me to go through trials that bring that deceit to the top. And what am I supposed to do with it? Now, I can either, like, own it or I can deny it. If I own it and confess it, it's wiped out. God takes it away, and I, that transformation takes place. If I don't deny it and I get prideful, well, they just let you wallow in that for a while. How do you like that, son? No, I don't like that. You know, that, you know we do that with our children. You know, all right, when you get sick and tired of being sick and tired, we'll come talk about it. You do. You just, because you got to bring, you got to let people come to the point where they're sick and tired of being sick and tired of being sick and tired. Because you can't help people. God can't help people until they realize they have a problem. God can't help you until you realize you have a need. God can't help you until you realize you need mercy. And see, this is what the truth of God does. It breaks us down. And when we just yield, it's like, well, thank you. Now I can come in and sanctify you and put joy in your heart and love in your life. It's just a beautiful process and as you exercise yourself or allow yourself to be exercised in this it's one of the most glorious things of the Christian life now I am talking about a radical change here in our lives this is natural hey I gotta think you're involved in some cult huh well from the out from the world it's like well you're brainwashed no it's more than that no it's not even close to that bro it's called regeneration we are so far from God. We are so far from God in our culture that we have no idea or we can't even begin to grasp what God is actually requiring of us. And you know what it is? It's not that much. It's called yielding, presenting ourselves to God and allowing Him to do what only He can do in our lives. Now, Look what he says about the will of God. He's not using adjectives here just to describe the will of God. This is what the will of God is. And never forget this. In fact, I always encourage people to, to these verses when they're trying to find out whether or not what they want to do or need to do or the decision they need to make is in the will of God. This is it right here. But he's describing, in a sense, what the will of God is. It's what it is. It's good. God's will is nothing but good. And see, and it takes faith for you to believe that. Well, if I accept the Lord, I, I totally surrender to God. My life is going to be a, oh, I don't want, ah. You know, that's what we're taught by the world. Because we don't know. We have no idea what that means. Because we don't know what God's going to do to us, right? <laughs> I mean, we, all, we make up all kinds of like little, you know, dialogues in our mind on what God could possibly do to us if we yield to him. Like he's mean and, and going to be hard on us. Whatever we're allowed to go through, no matter what, there's always sufficient grace. There's always what we need. God isn't an ogre or overbearing in any way. I don't know about you, but not only is God's will good, but it's acceptable. It's pleasing. It pleases him. 
And when I find my delight in him, it pleases me. And it's perfect. What does that mean? It's complete. There's nothing left out. Well, if I do God's will, I'm going to be, I'll never really have fun the rest of my life. My fun is over. I mean, I think there's Christians that actually believe that. But you're going to be a Christian? How boring is that? You have no idea what you speak of if you think that or say that. I don't know about you. Is this awesome or what? God's will is just awesome. It's morally right. It's well-pleasing, and it covers all the bases. It's what's amazing here is that a renewed mind, if you're going through this process, you will find, and this is what we're coming to here, you will find your place in the body of Christ. Where it is that God wants you to fit in, plug in, and begin to function. But you'll never find it unless you come to that point of complete and utter surrender to God. And what does it take? It takes essential thinking. For I say through the grace given to me for everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt each one a measure of faith. We have to see our lives through the lens of grace. Paul was given a lot of grace. Man, this guy murdered people. He received mercy and he received grace to lead the people of God. He was a leader in the church, but he never ever forgot that he was a sinner saved by grace. He never forgot how merciful God had been to him. And those of us who walk with the Lord are in that same mindset. See, our minds are renewed day by day and this is why I preach devotions. You've got to give the Holy Spirit something to work with. You've got to get the Word of God in your mind so God can put it in your heart. You need to pray and converse with your Father in Heaven. And then you need to have fellowship. Just like I said, there's three enemies that you fight and are in war with. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Well, there's three things you need as a Christian to overcome those. You need the Word of God, you need prayer, and you need fellowship. You do those three things... And I guarantee you the, the three things of the flesh and the world will not have an issue. You will not have an issue with them. God will give you the victory. That's just the way it works. But you have to view your life through the lens of mercy and grace and you have to have an honest evaluation. Think soberly. That's what he means. Just give yourself an honest, personal self-evaluation. Not higher than you are, but not lower than you are. Because either direction is pride. There's pride in, in thinking you're you know, superior, but it's also equip, equally prideful to think you're inferior. You are who you are, and this is what the scriptures do. They bring us to that complete honesty. Well, I'm not a total train wreck, but I am a train wreck on occasion. You know, that kind of thing. You find, in your, and you're not afraid to, in your own heart and mind, you're not afraid to like, come to grips with this. It's actually quite freeing to, to, to go through that. And then he recognizes that everybody's given a quantity, a measure of faith. And we don't, each of us have it. It's different for each of us. And this is what he says in Ephesians 4, 7. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. 
Therefore, when he ascended on high, he led captivity and he gave gifts unto men. Wonderful. First Peter 4.10 Each one of us has received a gift. Minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. You see, the gifts that you have been given, you've been gifted. You're specially gifted by God. Isn't that a wonderful thought? You have a gift from God. It's waiting. He's waiting for you to develop it and to use it. Part of using that gift is, as he says, there's recognizing the body of Christ, discerning the body of Christ. There are many members and everybody has a different function. He uses that simple analogy of our body. You know, my mind says, pick that object up. My hand responds by reaching out and picking up that object, mission accomplished. My mind and my hand are not the same members, but they work in unity, in coordination with each other. This is the way the body of Christ is to work. And this happens because everybody's employing their gift directed by the Holy Spirit. He's, he's the, the brains behind it all. Verse 5 talks about there being many individuals with, with those different functions. And so the idea is we are all part of the priesthood. We are a kingdom of priests. This is what the Revelation tells us. You're a priest. You're a priestess. Really? Yeah. No, you don't know. Wait, whoa. Oh, yes, you are. You just haven't come into the understanding that you need right now. You haven't discovered your gift. You haven't walked in with the Lord sufficiently to discover that, yes, you are a priest, a priestess. And you're there to employ your gift and serve the Lord. And this is what we're going to be doing with one another. What, why is this? What is God after here? Turn with me. You need to turn to this one. Ephesians 4.11. So for some of you who are looking at the clock, just, you're Okay. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a complete man or a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love, we may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does it share. It causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. So as our church is beginning to grow, it's imperative that we must employ these 
gifts, these spiritual gifts that we've been endowed with. It isn't just up to the leadership of the church to make it growth. It's every member doing their part, pulling their weight, so to speak. Now, there's a list of seven gifts. I'm just going to kind of read through them real briefly as we come to an end here. And this is something that you, someone can't tell you what, they might be able to recognize the gift, but this is something that you have to work out in your own personal walk with God, and He'll show you. A lot of times, as the Bible says, I will write my law in their hearts. I believe it's in our DNA already. God made us a certain way. You know, some of you just love, like, like for example, to teach. You, you have just a, 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 a desire to study. You love research, and you love truth, and you just, oh, you just get really excited about learning. Well, that's probably because you have the gift of teaching. And I believe this is a very common gift in the church for obvious reasons. But let's just start at the top here. These seven, prophecy. And and you do it according to your faith. And it's there to, what is prophecy for? It's not talking about predicting the future, although that can get involved. But primarily it's, it's, it's to strengthen and encourage and comfort people. It's the proclamation of God's word. This... Uh, applies the word of God to the situation that you're in. And the, what's the motive behind this? Because you want to see people reconciled to God. You want to see people's lives restored to what God has. And this is the effect of God's word. It restores people. The apostle Peter is an example of this one, obviously. In fact, all the apostles. He preached the gospel and people came to the Lord. He preached the gospel and people were healed. He taught and encouraged the body of Christ. Then there's ministry and serving. This gives, This is the idea of meeting practical needs. I mean, you know, uh, it says in one place, be warm, be filled, you know, God bless you, James. You know, like, okay, right. How, words don't put food in someone's belly or clothes on someone's back. There has to be a practical application and all. And so Paul comments actually what we'll be covering this week uh, Philippians 2 19 through 22 about Timothy he said I have no man who's uh, like minded who will care for your state he really wanted to help people and care for the people in the body of Christ he, he wasn't concerned about seeking his own but the welfare of others you see this is a person who has that ministry gift of serving and then as I mentioned their teaching just a strong conviction for accurate doctrine. You, truth is important to you. You're a principle-oriented person, and, and truth is very important to you, and you're seeking it out, and you're searching it out, and then you want other people to know it. And um, I've got a friend that's really got a strong gift. Every time we get into a conversation, he's always got to tell me what he's been teaching because he just loves to expound on... It's just so cool. <laughs> Two hours later, yeah, he's really... Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and then the gift of exhortation. Uh, this focus on um, to see people grow and mature in their faith. You know, come alongside to help. Paul obviously had this gift. You can observe it in his writings. And then uh, the gift of giving. Uh, this is a person who has the ability to take the resources that are at hand and then wisely distribute them to 
accomplish uh, the task that needs to be done. They're able to analyze and organize and get the job done. <laughs> we could use a few of those people around. <laughs> Everybody needs those people around. Barnabas had this gift. He saw the need. Hey, I've got this. I'm going to give this, and then this can happen. And so uh, the gift of giving. And then the gift of leadership, people who have the ability to manage, to lead, and to direct things, uh, literally means to stand before. Now, this would be sort of illustrated by James in Acts 15, when they had a problem in the church. You know, how do the Gentiles, how, what's this, how are they going to relate to the law? What we, how is this all going to work out? Well, he, they listened. He listened to all the arguments, right? And then he said, this is what needs to be done. And so he exercised that gift of leadership and gave the church, the early church, direction in this regard. And only laid four things on the law for the Gentile believers. No blood, nothing strangled, no fornication. And there's one more. You can look that up. <laughs> Out of time. Uh, mercy is the last one here with cheerfulness. There are some people that just have are naturally compassionate. They see people in need. They see people that are are, are broken hearted and they can just I've seen this gift in operation and then it just it is such a blessing to watch someone with the gift of mercy just in uh, metaphorically speaking just wrap their arms around that person and love them in the midst of their pain and it be received. And I believe that this is this is what the church needs. So many times people come to church and they're critic they just criticize they're criticized, they're judged, they feel judged. I don't know about you, but, you know, last time I checked it, it in order to judge somebody, it takes a, omniscience to do that. All knowledge. And, you know, I don't have that. So it sort of takes me out of the position of being a judge. In fact, James really sort of clamps down on that, doesn't he? If you're a judge, you're no longer a doer. So what gives me the right to judge anybody? I got my own issues, right? Let's take care of my own business. And so John, the Apostle John, would obviously have this gift. Uh, you can read it. And you should read those letters. I mean, they're just full of love and love one another and love God. Just keep it simple, right? Uh, so uh, lots of there. So these are the seven gifts that are mentioned here next week. We'll get into the gifts in Second, First Corinthians 12. Uh, and some of the gifts are, are, are mentioned a couple different times, you'll see. But in closing, just what's, what do we get from this? You know, we're taking the doctrine. We're taking the teaching. So where do we go with this? Well, my encouragement is to let the Holy Spirit teach you. Let the Holy Spirit lead you. Let Him guide you into all truth concerning these gifts and what he, how He wants to use you. And my exhortation to you is to present yourself. Offer yourself to God every day. And please allow Him access and permission into your heart to do whatever he wants to do. You will be so thrilled and so happy in the Lord. You'll never, ever regret it. And as I said, give God something to work with each day. Spend a little time in the prayer. Spend a little time in the Word. Fill your mind with the Word of God and allow the Holy Spirit to do his special work because you are spiritually gifted and God wants to use you. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for your word. And we ask, Lord, that you would do what only you can do in our lives. And that is to make us like Jesus. 
Lord, we ask that you'd be merciful to us, and we know that you are. That you continue to be kind and gracious and lead us away from ourselves, from being self-centered. Make us other-centered. Make us like you, Lord. And we pray this in sincerity, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Show